These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, we followed daily life as it would be experienced by those living in the ubiquitous Anatolian villages that dominated the valleys of the Hittite Empire, and even the parts of Anatolia outside Hittite domination. We followed a hypothetical young man as he walked through a generic Anatolian city, looking at a few things that have been dug up by archaeologists. You, that hypothetical young man, went from your house to the water shop, to the bar, and then got married. All in all, an eventful hypothetical day. But today we're going to be looking at a different domain of daily life than we did last time, and so we need to introduce a new character into our little story. One who will sit in the background and both inform and limit many of our actions. This is the Hittite Law Code. In general, the Hittite Law Code shares many similarities with the Law Codes of Mesopotamia, including the famous Code of Hammurabi that we covered in depth in previous periods of the show. Like the Mesopotamian Codes, this isn't actually a Law Code in the sense that we would understand it today. Rather, it's a series of judicial decisions, which most likely arose from actual legal disputes. In Mesopotamia, legalist-minded kings such as Lipit-Ishtar, Ur-Namu, and Hammurabi would collect records of legal decisions that seemed important for one reason or another. Perhaps they illustrated a certain legalistic point, or perhaps they set a representative penalty for a crime, or perhaps it just covered a edge case that didn't often come up. And they would write them all down and publish them so that those who judged the law and those who came before it as prosecution and defense could all have a point of reference as to what is reasonable. All of this applies to the Hittite legal code, and indeed it's structured in the same if-then formula that characterizes Mesopotamian codes. Almost certainly, whoever wrote the first iteration of the code was cribbing heavily off Hammurabi's document. However, the Hittite legal code differs from the Mesopotamian tradition in some key aspects. Of course, some of the penalties, laws, and details are different to reflect the different culture, but we will be looking at that here in a bit. But perhaps most intriguingly, those laws don't have a singular name attached to them like the previous law codes did. Almost certainly, the first version was written by Hattusili I, though it could well have been Mershili, or it could have even been written before Hattusili himself. But most importantly, this very code was iterated on through the centuries, and by the time of the Hittite New Kingdom, which we're still a few episodes away from, we have copies of the same law code which include statements that read, In previous times, X was done, but now we do Y. Hammurabi's code, as far as we can tell, was set in stone, both literally and figuratively, and its pronouncements were increasingly ignored as they faded into irrelevance. But the Hittite code was looked at from time to time by kings and judicial ministers with an awareness that sometimes the standards of justice changed over time. Of course, it's an open question how either law code worked in practice and just how inflexible the Mesopotamian tradition or how flexible the Hittite tradition could well have looked quite differently in daily life as opposed to the purely theoretical law codes that we have before us. 
But from what survives, mostly from the codes themselves, the Hittite tradition does seem to be a little bit more mature and legislative in character. Not that you, the average Hittite young man, are too terribly interested in how legislative your laws are. It isn't like you're going to be voting for them or anything. No, what concerns you far more is the fact that within the law code itself, provisions are made for differences in local customs. In one of the most famous lines from Hittite jurisprudence, the king declares that in places where the custom is to exile a criminal, let them continue to exile, and in the places where the custom is to kill a criminal, let them continue to kill. This, in addition to what we discussed last week about how marriage could be matrilocal or patrilocal depending on the community, suggests that the kingdom tolerated a fair amount of diversity in local customs, a marked difference from what we see in Mesopotamian legal traditions. In any case, as a young man of middle or lower class, odds are that you have only a passing familiarity with these legal traditions, relying on a hired scribe should you ever need to resolve a dispute or make a large contract. You can't read, and you can't learn how. It takes years of dedicated study that only the sons of the upper class can afford. Perhaps a middle class family could scrape together enough for a very promising son, but not for you. If contemporary literary rates at the great centers of civilization in Egypt and Mesopotamia were perhaps 1-2% to at most, then literacy in the Hittite Empire definitely won't even reach that. One in a hundred people being able to read is generous for the cultural backwater of Anatolia. But that's fine, because you don't need to read. Now that you're married and looking to form your own household, what you need to do is start farming. Everyone you know is a farmer. Sure, the real big cities have temples and palaces where some non-farmers may live, but both wealth and subsistence for everyone you will ever come into contact with is based around agriculture. If you were a bit lower class, you would attach yourself to a wealthier family to assist in their planting and harvesting for a fee. But you're looking to acquire land for yourself and establish your family as decent freeholders, the respected backbone of the Hittite kingdom. You may well be a craftsman and practice a trade on the side, but Anatolia has far less dedicated industrial output than we see evidence for in Mesopotamia or Egypt. The king and the largest of temples may have kept a couple of smiths and woodworkers and dedicated craftsmen. The local blacksmith also had a plot that he had to maintain from year to year. There are a number of ways that you could get your land. Easiest would be to inherit it from your own father. If no inheritance is forthcoming, or in order to supplement this, you can get land from the Hittite king. Probably not from the king directly, of course. He's busy. But if you serve the government in certain ways, you can be granted land in exchange for your services, either as a craftsman or as a soldier, not unlike, and probably copied from, the Babylonian Ilkham system. Also, most lands are freely available to be bought and sold, if both parties can agree on a price. 
Though we focus a lot on the power and wealth of the kings in the ancient world, the fact is that the amount of bureaucracy and oversight that they're able to provide are minuscule by the standards of modern governance. And in the absence of restrictive regulations, a free market is the rule in any complex economy. As a young man, you have a few options to get your initial startup money. Again, inheritance is an option, but that's boring. Far more exciting is the prospect of being called up in the king's army on one of the seemingly endless campaigns of defense and conquest that occupy the kingdom's summers. The wage itself would have been modest, but should you participate in the sack of a city, oh, you have the opportunity to get your hands on some choice plunder, wealth, women, and slaves. Once the king takes his share, you may well still have enough to buy a plot or two in your home village, or even move on to a newly emptied plot in the conquered city, though this last seems to have been not quite as common in Anatolia as in Mesopotamia, with vassalage often being preferred over outright conquest of the losers. Of course, if being a man of weapons isn't so much your thing, then a string of successful years in well-managed farms, a mix of luck and hard, careful work, can multiply your wealth to be reinvested into even more land. Anatolia is chronically underpopulated, and throughout Hittite history, it seems there were always more arable lands than there were men to work them, and thus good farmland was remarkably cheap, with three to 4,000 square meters of uncultivated land running for no more than two to three shekels on average. Farming plots are small, many broken down into much less than an acre, and so it seems likely that most people owned at least three or four different plots at different places outside the village. Imagine your town as the dot at the center of a three to eight kilometer wide circle. Within that circle are countless tiny plots. Everyone lives in the village itself, and each day you trudge out to work your fields, passing by your neighbors heading out to do the same. Making polite conversation as you march out for your daily work, one fellow tells you that he's planning to trim the trees in his orchard. Another tells you that it's time for him to pull the weeds out from his wheat field, while you yourself have legumes to manage. The dozens of plots are a riot of diversity. Grains are common, of course, a staple here as much as elsewhere, though you enjoy far more wheat and have to endure less barley than Mesopotamian farmers, with multiple varieties of each whose culinary and agricultural peculiarities you are intimately familiar with. But in addition, you can easily see in the fields around you an assortment of vegetables. Carrots, onions, leeks, garlic, cucumber, and parsley. Beans and peas of all sorts, including chickpeas and lentils. Fruit grows on tree and vine, such as olives, figs, apples, pears, grapes, apricots, and pomegranates. And many of the same spices that still characterize modern Turkish cuisine, such as cumin and coriander, have been growing here since time immemorial. Of course, you don't see these all at the same time. Different crops grow in different seasons, though the harshness of Anatolian winters and summers puts a limit on how many harvests you can take in a year. But still, even without being terribly rich, 
your children can enjoy well-rounded nutrition as well as the joy of many different flavors on the table. The Mesopotamians and Egyptians both wrote poetry in praise of their barley bread, and no doubt fresh warm bread tasted of happiness then as it does now. But to regularly be able to mix ingredients and produce dishes even at lower levels of society is a benefit that many Southerners are wholly ignorant of. Of course, in exchange, the people of the Great Rivers enjoyed substantially greater food security. You, the young Anatolian man, know well the fury of your gods and how that can express in crippling winters or bone-dry summers to wipe out a whole year's harvest without warning. The land of the Hatti is not one that can well absorb catastrophe, and while the good years are good, the bad years leave a mark for decades. But it would be highly unusual for you to only grow crops. Animals live with you, likely sleeping in your house if you're poor enough to own only a few, or sleeping in rented stables in town if your flock is larger. Cattle, pigs, and goats are the primary food animals. Sheep can give milk and wool, but are less frequently eaten, and donkeys and horses are as valuable to you as a tractor would be to a modern farmer. You may also keep bees on the roof of your house, ignorant of their role in aiding the fertility of nearby orchards, but quite happily aware of the sweetness of their honey. Something you do not have is chickens. Those haven't made it over from Southeast Asia yet, but wild birds and other small game may be hunted from time to time, as both recreation and to supplement the table. But we've been speaking in generalities here. To get a taste of what a modest farmer might own, we can look at an inventory of the assets of a man by the name of Tawatapara, an utterly unremarkable landowner. The document records that the estate of Tawatapara consists of one man, Tawatapara, one boy, Hartuwanduli, one woman, Asia, two girls, Aniti and Hantawia, total five persons, two oxen, 22 sheep, six draft oxen, four rams, 18 ewes, and with the ewes, two female lambs, and with the rams, two male lambs, 18 goats, and with the goats, four kids, and with the he-goat, one kid, total 36 small cattle, one house, as a pasture for oxen, one acre of meadow in the town Parkala, three and a half acres of vineyard, and in it 40 apple trees and 42 pomegranate trees, in the town of Hanzusra. All of this does not include the land of Tawatapara's actual farm, which records are lost for, but likely included another plot or two, since nearly all farmers seem to have held a handful of disconnected plots around the village, as well as space for a vegetable garden and maybe more grazing area for the animals. This is, taken together, considered a modest but comfortable living, and while your particular mix on your own patchwork of fields is likely to be different, the overall sense of variety is likely to be quite similar. But from our modern perspective, it can be hard to take a long list of agricultural things and really understand just how wealthy Tawatapara actually was. 
Thankfully, the Hittite Law Code, among many other useful things, provides us with the best single resource on economics in the Bronze Age. The laws labeled 176 to 186 in the modern numbering are a massive list of official state-sanctioned prices for land, labor, capital, and key commodities. It's an open question just how stringently these prices were enforced over the great territorial expanse and 500-year reign of the Hittite Empire, but at the very least, the laws serve as a guide for what could be expected during good times. A plow ox is priced at 12 shekels of silver when purchased according to the dictates of the law code, and a cow is worth seven. Weaned calves are worth four shekels. Sheep are one shekel each, and two for a shekel in the case of lambs. And a goat is two-thirds of a shekel each. Now, taking Tawatapara's stated herd altogether, he owns perhaps 102 shekels worth of livestock, counting it conservatively. In addition, with every 3,500 square meters of productive vineyard priced at 40 shekels, his three and a half acres of orchard comes out to perhaps another 160 shekels in land value. Alternately, counting the trees instead of the land at a value of three to six shekels per tree, his 82 fruit trees are worth some 240 to 480 shekels all by themselves, though probably closer to the lower end. This, however, doesn't include the things that are harder to count, such as the clothes and hides and pasture land and house and furniture and unlisted cropland. At most conservative, we can account for a net worth of at least 300 shekels for this family, and with a little reasonable filling in the gaps, we could easily speculate assets well in excess of 500 shekels. Of course, this isn't liquid wealth, but keep this number in mind as we move on here. Now, for a bit of context, Remember that a shekel is not a coin. Coins have not been invented yet, but a standard unit of weight. So we're talking about like 7.5 to 12.5 pounds of silver. Today, 12 pounds of silver will set you back some 4,000 US dollars. But the modern economy is so far divorced from how things were in ancient times that this is really a poor comparison. Throughout the Bronze Age Near East, we find a remarkably consistent equation that one month of unskilled manual or agricultural labor is worth approximately one shekel. That's to say, if you, average Anatolian man, were wholly without capital of any sort, you always had the option to sell your services at planting, harvest, or to whoever else needed labor done, for a wage of about a shekel per month. The Hittite code actually implies that a Hittite man is worth one and a quarter shekels per month, while a Hittite woman's unskilled labor goes for about half a shekel per month. But the code itself doesn't say this directly. Instead, it says that a man hired for three months is owned 1,500 liters of barley, then later fixes the price of barley at half shekel per 200 liters. But of course, in the non-monetary economy that dominated Bronze Age Anatolia, you would expect to be paid out as a portion of whatever crop you helped to bring in. Upon being paid in barley, you can then look to the law code, or perhaps to shortened versions of it that you may have posted around town. 
With 1,500 liters in hand, you can convert your wealth to about 3.75 shekels. But really, you don't need to do that, since everyone knows how much your grain is worth. You can go directly to the butter maker, whose prices are specified as a bottle of butter per shekel, and trade him 400 liters of barley. Or you can go to a weaver and get a thin tunic for three shekels or 1,200 liters of barley. In fact, different grades of clothes are specified at different prices, from the finest garments worth 30 shekels to the cheapest sackcloth ones being worth only a single shekel. Two large cheeses go for a shekel, as does a bottle of honey or a bottle of lard. Fine oil, such as for perfuming, is two shekels, and 20 lamb or kid skins is also a shekel. The meat of two full-grown cows is worth a single sheep, which by itself is worth one shekel. An unskilled slave appears to be worth 20 shekels, though in another clause it appears that an artisan slave is worth only 10, though this is likely a peculiarity in the translation somewhere here, and it's speculated that it's 10 shekels in addition to the price of the 20 shekel unskilled base price. So 30 shekels total for a skilled craftsman. In any case, this is quite a lot of detail, which fascinates me, but may sound like a bit of a drone to all of you, for which I apologize a little bit. But what it means is that when put together, is that for you, the average Anatolian carrying your massive pile of barley to the market, is that luxuries like clothes, fine food, and metal items are outrageously expensive. However, the capital to start or expand your independent productive capacity is pricey, but well within your reach, and likely to pay for itself in a small number of good, well-managed years. And the only things that are cheap in this economy are basic foodstuffs and unskilled labor. To put it in perspective, the rent of a nice bronze axe for a month costs about as much as the hire of a laborer for that same period. But to put it in another way, I've mentioned before that the average calorie intake for the average adult male likely required somewhere between 350 and 600 liters of barley per year, or the equivalent. This means that a man earning one and a quarter shekels a month can feed himself for the year on one to one and a half shekels per year. One man working half the year on these wages will keep a small family fed, though in poverty, and the other half of the year can go towards earning or building the other material needs of the family. It was often attested, both directly and indirectly, that a diligent man who suffers no setbacks from weather or illness could start from nothing, or even start in slavery, and build himself up to a decent living, and leave his offspring on a footing to approach the status of free landholder with careful conservation and, of course, the blessing of the gods. Which brings us to the matter of ancient Hittite slavery. Like all cultures of the ancient Near East, 
slaves made up a substantial minority of the Anatolian population, especially during the decades following successful wars of conquest, like Mershili's Great Expedition of Babylon, which could have brought back human loot counted in the tens of thousands. The specific circumstances of a slave's job and the temperament of his overseer would dictate precisely how unpleasant their life was, but in some cases, the lot of a slave could be more comfortable than that of a particularly unlucky free man. But I shouldn't need to tell you that whether you were well-treated or ill-treated, becoming a slave wasn't exactly an aspirational dream of anyone. There were many ways that you could end up a slave, and while the word slave is generally applied uniformly to the various conditions that people could find themselves in, there were three general categories that Hittite slaves seem to have slotted into. The classical slave, the deportee, and the rebel. Now, I've just described you, the average Hittite man, as doing fairly well for yourself and able to get quite a lot done with a bit of diligence. However, a diligent man can be abandoned by the gods. Who knows why the gods chose this year to strike down your fields, but all your hard work has come to nothing, and you're facing absolute ruin in the span of only a few seasons. You might take a loan this year from one of the wealthy merchants that comes through town from time to time, or from the local village headman. But next year, the weather doesn't improve at all, and your crops wither completely, and you're unable to repay that debt. Maybe you sell your children into slavery. After all, you can't pay that debt, and you can't feed your children. So you tell yourself that it'll only be for a few years. The children will have a guaranteed living until you're back on your feet, and you trust that you'll be able to buy your kids back when things get better. But things don't get better for you, and your debts pile up. Alternately, many of the criminal punishments for harm specified in the law code were, just like in many earlier Mesopotamian law codes, monetary fines. And if you could no longer afford the 40 shekel penalty for ill-advisedly biting off someone's nose, then perhaps you would end up in debt, or perhaps you would face enslavement outright. Whether you were sold by the head of your household, roped in by your own debt, or punished for crimes, you have become a slave, typically belonging to a particular person or local institution. Your life is not necessarily completely horrible, and in many ways you've joined the household of your master, though as a piece of property, not as a family member. What you're generally expected to do is not all that different from what you would be expected to do as a very junior family member. Work the master's fields, tend his flocks, perform his household chores. For those with skills, you could expect to be put to work in your accustomed trade. And for attractive women, you could expect to serve the master as if he were your husband. The only difference in all this is that you don't, by default, receive any pay for any of these services. Additionally, a cruel master has the right to beat or even kill you for any or no reason, though given the value of a slave, this is unlikely to have been common practice. But you're not wholly without rights. Though it is obscure how exactly a slave could earn money for himself, if you're able to do so, you have the right to keep it, 
and many things appear to indicate that it was not unusual for a slave to own a modest amount of wealth for himself. Though it was surely uncommon, a slave man was able to marry a free woman as well, and have his children's freedom be secured through the mother's line. And some credit the punishments for unrelated persons striking a slave as a protection for the slave's human rights, though personally, I see them more as protection of the master's property rights. Ultimately, while the material conditions of a slave's life may be the same or even better than they were while free, a slave is still property, subject to the whims of the master or reselling to a new master, or even punishment as the master sees fit. The law is very clear on the matter, saying simply, if a slave rebels against his owner, he shall go into a clay jar. It is debated whether the slave in question would be alive or dead at the beginning of the injarring process, but there is no doubt that he would end up dead as a result. But there existed another class of slaves, lower in social status even than those debt or criminal slaves, though not perhaps actually worse off in living conditions. Though the ancient texts don't always seem to distinguish between these types of slaves, many modern scholars translate the second group not as slaves, but as deportees. Some portion of these may have been sold off to individuals to act as classical slaves, but for the most part, these deportees remained property of the king or his viceroys. They were settled together into villages, which differed quite little from the sorts of free villages we've been describing up until now. The people would build houses, engaged in mixed agriculture, undertake small-scale craft works, and pay an exorbitant tax to the crown. These deportee villages were often located in the unsettled north of the Hattian lands, along the border with the Cascan tribes of the Caucasus, and thus would take the brunt of the nomad raids when they came down from time to time. Additionally, the people of these villages had no right to move out of them and no right to buy and sell land among themselves. However, those who went with the flow and adapted to the new environment were free to keep their gods and their customs, and often the people of their household, as long as they paid taxes and gave submission to the Hittite monarchy. Additionally, those deportees taken from places less used to settled life were often used as essentially cowboys, living the same transient existence they were used to, but now among the hills and valleys of the Anatolian wilds, taking the livestock of the king, landowners, and temples far afield when grazing closer to town was unsuitable. Oversight appears to have been much less stringent in these deportee communities, and while opportunities to escape your situation were highly constrained, a loyal deportee village could well find favor with the local lord, being allowed to join with the military, and maybe even be allowed to revert to a more standard citizenship status within a generation or two. But from what we can tell, Though the status of the deportees did not seem to have been too horrible, the shock of dislocation and the shame of slavery caused many to attempt to flee. For those who attempted escape, either from their colony or from more standard slavery, there was 
still a lower informal status they could sink to, one typically reserved for the rebellious or runaways among the slaves and deportees. The lord or landowner would send these slaves off to industrial labor houses, where they would work for extended hours a day under harsh conditions and low life expectancies. In the most miserable of documented cases, the runaway slaves were prevented from running any further by being blinded. You would think that blinding would limit a slave's usefulness, but given the citations in the Hittite law code, it must not have been completely unheard of. These blinded slaves could be attached to a great milling wheel and forced to turn it all day long, being escorted back to bed after a grueling day. This may sound like a scene from the movie Conan the Barbarian, but I can assure you it produced no great heroes. Just a life of misery, exertion, and darkness, from which escape became impossible this side of death. But speaking of death, what happened to a Hittite man when he died? This, like many aspects of Anatolian culture, appears to have varied between regions. For the Indo-European rulers and those communities who shared in their cultural practices, cremation was the preferred way to handle a deceased loved one's body. Of course, a king's death is far more elaborate than a commoner can expect, but cremation by its very nature leaves a bit less archaeological record than burial, so we're forced to rely on written accounts of the top of society. If the family of the deceased could afford it, the funeral pyre would be sanctified by animal sacrifices and purified with ritual words that could last for days, two whole weeks in the case of the king. Then the body would be laid upon the pyre, at which point offerings of food and water would be offered up to the local sun goddess and the honored ancestors, both of whom would ease the deceased's passage into the afterlife. In the evening, the torch is applied and the body, along with the offerings, are consumed by flames. The next day, the bones are gathered and placed at the head of a banquet table, at which point the funeral banquet begins in the presence of the dead man. This is not a symbolic banquet. The guests are eating and drinking as normal, even if the nominal host is now beyond such needs. And in his presence, the mourners make toasts and speak highly of the man who once lived. With the banquet concluded, it's time for the serious magic to be brought out. A human figure made of sweet fruits like figs, olives, and raisins is placed before the bones. Tempted by the candy, the spirit will finally exit the earthly remains and come to inhabit the figure, much as a god inhabits his cult statue in a temple. The bones and the figure are again consecrated and finally interred into what's called a house of stone a tiny cubby in a mausoleum, which will serve as the final resting place of the honored dead. Depending on the man's occupation in life, a patch of turf may be cut out from the ground and interred with him, so that he may have ample pasture land in the hereafter. Alternately, farming implements may be offered to his spirit, though these would need to be broken, since he is dead and the tools will do him no good in the afterlife unless they too are dead. 
In regions where cremation was disfavored, the bodies of the dead were laid to rest intact and offered very similar grave goods and grave offerings, both for honoring the gods and for the use in the afterlife. The person can be laid directly in a hole in the ground with stones laid on top, or stuffed in fetal position into a large clay jar, buried with the opening facing towards the southeast. The exact significance of this jar is unclear, though likely it represented something to do with the beliefs of the afterlife among those communities that practiced it. Most Anatolians, in fact, were spoiled for choice, with some communities showing burial sites in which all three methods of interring were practiced. But for the Hittite kings, there would never be any great burial monuments like the Egyptian pharaohs loved, just consignment to the purifying flame. But once the person is buried and gone, their fate does not seem to have been too terribly great, even if well prepared for the afterlife. Much like the Mesopotamians, Anatolians believe that the world beyond the veil was a dark, boring, and unhappy place situated literally beneath the earth. While the ideas of the afterlife do not seem to have been systematized or consistent, texts from kings near death indicated that they anticipated that it was nothing to look forward to. In one description, we hear that the afterlife is a deeply alienating place. One does not recognize another. Sisters by the same mother do not recognize each other. Brothers by the same father do not recognize each other. A mother does not recognize her own child, and the child does not recognize its own mother. From a fine table they do not eat. From a fine stool they do not eat. From a fine cup they do not drink. They do not eat good food. They do not drink good drink. They eat bits of mud. They drink muddy waters. All in all, it compares quite closely to the land of shades described in the Mesopotamian tale of Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and the Underworld, which was discussed on this show all the way back in the episode Gilgamesh Has Adventures. The afterlife is not a place of judgment as it is in Egypt or in modern Christianity. It's just a place to go when your time on Earth has ended. A place where you simply exist at the most minimal, unhappy level. Death for an Anatolian was simply the end, and not an end to be embraced. And it is the end for this episode as well. What I had originally anticipated as being a single, fairly short episode on daily life is spilling over into a third episode, which would cover the temple and palace economy, the trades and religious life, all in the context of the law code. But we're not going to get there yet. We're going to cut this here. We're going to return to those topics later on, probably during our discussion of the later Hittite Empire period in a few hundred years. There's some exciting narrative waiting for us, both in the Hittite court and in the grand order of the late Bronze Age great power politics. So join us next time as we get back to Hattusha just in time for a flurry of assassinations, divine curses, and legal reforms as we look at the age of bloodshed following King Mershili's death. Thank you for listening.